WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. We're going to take a trip right now. Like we always do about this time. This is a journey into sound. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto, made possible in part by the Indianapolis Foundation, celebrating over 100 years of service. My guest tonight is the musician Rafiq Bhatia. Rafiq is best known as the guitarist for the band Sun Lux. But Rafiq has an extraordinary solo album out titled Breaking English. A recent New York Times article called Rafiq one of the most intriguing figures in music today. Tonight, we'll be listening to some tracks off Breaking English, and Rafiq will share how the isolation he experienced growing up as an Asian American Muslim in North Carolina pushed him to seek community in music making. And Rafiq Bhatia will be performing live in Indianapolis with an immersive multimedia experience on Thursday, November 8th, in the Toby at Newfields. Opening for Rafiq will be the acclaimed Sunlux drumming virtuoso Ian Chain, who brings electronic music to the physical realm. This is going to be an incredible show, and I highly recommend checking it out. For tickets and more information, visit discovernewfields.org. Let's join my conversation with Rafiq Bhatia. Yeah, thank you, Rafiq, for being here. Appreciate it. Yeah, and, thanks for having me. And uh, am I correct that you largely grew up in North Carolina? Yes. Yeah, I spent most of the first 18 years of my life in North Carolina. <laughs> and was music a part of your family's life growing up? My mother's family has a fair amount of history with music. Her father was a violinist, um, not by profession because that wasn't really an option um, or it wasn't presented as a viable option to him, but he ran a uh, cafe in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, where my mom grew up. Um, And his way of sort of staying in touch with his artistry was to perform for his patrons every night. But he passed away before I was born, so I never had a chance to meet him. Um, But his legacy in music lived on through all of his daughters, um, all of whom low-key sing really well, um, and one of whom sings very well in public. She's not doing it so much anymore, but she was traveling and performing a lot. My father's side, meanwhile, has no history of engagement with music that I'm aware of, really. So that was always an interesting dynamic growing up. You know, there was a side of the family that kind of got where my interest was coming from and a side that really didn't. (laughs) What sparked your interest in the guitar specifically as a young person? It was the sort of thing where all of my friends were playing not guitar necessarily, but just instruments that you could play in order to be in a rock band with your friends. And I'd been playing violin for about nine years at that point. And that didn't really work out when I wanted to play that in the rock band with my friends, but um, I would just kind of pick up guitars that people weren't playing while they were doing something else and sort of like quietly mess around until eventually I learned a few songs and convinced my mom and she was really excited and got me a guitar and so that's how I started out, but I I was kind of like the last and the worst out of all my friends. You, you came to prominence, I would say, as a jazz guitarist, right? That's when you kind of like started, you know, becoming active as a, a solo musician when you were performing jazz on guitar. At what point did that interest take hold of you? It was about community more than it was about the kind of music, I think. And in fact, like, I grew up listening to hip-hop mostly, and so for me, like, even my interest in rock music was kind of like 
based on what my friends were into at the time and and I was I loved music from the time I was very young and I think my mom instilled that in me from an early age too because she loves music and um so I grew up with that but I think for me that when I discovered jazz there was something that tied music in back in with a search for identity that um really sort of solidified um a different level of interest for me. I mean, it really started with getting serious about the music of Jimi Hendrix because he was the first guitarist that I heard where it just sort of destroyed me like it didn't even feel like it was a guitar it just felt like something more deeply human than any instrument could convey and so I started doing the thing where I would it was like in the early days of the internet and people were just like posting all sorts of content from every year and it was all readily available and I would just like go down these wormholes of reading interviews with artists that I was into so I read these Hendrix interviews of like many of them he was like speaking in really abstract kind of like colorful terms about things but every so often i would glean some little insight or i'd like read a biography and they'd talk about how he was interested in these musicians and then i'd check them out and read their interviews and so i like i went on this sort of um self-directed kind of research journey um and it eventually led me to records by people like Miles Davis and John Coltrane and when I got to all of that I could hear a number of things that had I'd heard traces of in other music but they I felt like I had found where they were from in some way when I heard that music <laughs> By the time you're in your early mid-twenties, you know, you're playing with significant figures in uh, contemporary jazz. What was the transition from North Carolina to working with guys like Vijay Iyer and some of the people you've recorded with and performed with? First of all, I moved to New York after high school. I went to music school um, for a year in New York, and I ended up realizing that it really wasn't for me. New York didn't feel like it was for me yet. And beyond that, I had just been really interested in maybe studying something else and kind of getting an education outside of that whole thing. And I had heard Vijay's music. It was actually one of the first times that I'd ever seen somebody that looked remotely like me, you know, or like from my background on the cover of a magazine. I remember like seeing his face on the cover of Downbeat magazine and being like, wait a minute, like, who is this guy? I don't even know if it was conscious so much as it was, like, there was just an indescribable feeling because there had been so many times that I had looked at an advertisement or a magazine cover or a movie or anything and, like, not seen somebody who looked like me, like, the feeling of seeing that, and especially on the cover of a publication that was covering the music that I was listening to at the time. I thought I would, you know, needed to check his workout, and um, so I ordered his album Reimagining, which rewired my brain. And I, I was listening to him a lot, and then I started reading a little bit more about him and discovered that there were all of these things that we had in common like he grew up playing violin 
for around the same amount of time as I did. He learned it by the Suzuki method, which is how I learned. He started playing an instrument that he had around that wasn't the instrument he was trained on. In his case, it was piano because his sister used to play it. Started discovered jazz, found you know a kind of resonance with it that mirrored some of what I was describing. Um, you know, in his is his own way, and um, ended up going to school and getting a PhD in cognitive science, which was the subject that I was feeling at the time that maybe I wanted to study. So, and that, he did all of that before he moved to New York and pursued a professional career in music. So. You know, for someone in my shoes, looking at all of that and seeing that, it kind of made all of these things that I'd kind of never really taken seriously as a possibility, you know, it's really difficult to describe this feeling, but that magazine cover thing is a microcosm of what I mean when I say that, like, if you don't have a precedent for something, for your ability to do something, it can be hard to really imagine that it's possible. And I think that part of what I was even struggling with in music school was, you know, is this career that I'm pursuing, is this a, um, is this a selfish endeavor? Am I doing this to gratify myself? Or is this a part of, like, how can this be a part of any life in which I do something where I try to do right by other people, you know, or try to um, use any privilege that I have to hopefully leave the world a better place than I found it or try to work towards those ends. Part of why that I felt so defeated in that regard is because I'd never seen anyone like myself doing it. So I actually got in touch with Vijay. I just messaged him on MySpace and um, asked him if he'd be willing to give me some advice and he was really kind and got back to me and we went, we ended up going for lunch and um, he listened to what I had to say and, and was really, um, just ended up saying a lot of things that affirmed my suspicion that maybe I didn't need to go to music school and maybe that wasn't the only way. And um, I ended up, later studying with him studying composition mostly um but also talking a lot about improvisation since the way that he composes is for improvisers and then another person who i ended up working with early on was also a mentor of mine which was billy hart mr hart was teaching at oberlin when i transferred there and i transferred there intending to study cognitive science and not really you know to to keep doing music but to not really have it be as much of a focus in the short term and kind of come back to it more later but this thing happened when I got to Oberlin where my grades plummeted <laughs> and I just was spending all my time meeting all of these really amazing musicians who are using this bubble to cultivate their own very personal approaches to improvisation and to writing music and where people felt like they weren't so limited by any kind of constraints of what people were doing in the jazz scene in New York, let alone the jazz scene or jazz at all like it was just you know there was a free flow of information people were listening to all kinds of music and they were thinking about how music relates to other fields one of the many things that mr hart said to me in my time studying with him at oberlin which i did for about four years was that a lot of musicians will move to new york and they'll wait by the phone but that the musicians that end up doing things oftentimes aren't the ones that wait by the phone, they're the ones that pick up the phone. So the way that I ended up working with both of those mentors of mine was to work up the courage to ask them if they'd play with me. And, um, and they agreed. And so, you know, I think for me, it was not the sort of 
thing that happens with a lot of people who work a lot in jazz where they come to a place and get called by a few people and then other people hear them in that context it was kind of a different process whereby I started by articulating a vision you know or trying to articulate a vision that was my own and inviting people who I admired very deeply to be a part of that process and then seeing the result of that engagement being that people would then call me to be involved in their endeavors. You mentioned Billy Hart, a legendary drummer who played on your 2012 album, Yes It Will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to talk about the history of Indianapolis music on this show, and I want to make a weird segue here. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> you just came from IUPUI, teaching yeah, a yeah. class there, which is adjacent to Indiana Avenue, which is a street where yep. a large part of the modern language of the guitar was innovated by musicians right. like Wes Montgomery yep. and other guitarists too, like yeah. Scrapper Blackwell. But Billy Hart played with... Uh, Wes Montgomery yep. played drums with him during the last two years of his life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the last two years of Wes Montgomery's or, life. I don't... 66 I, or to 68, is that right? That I don't know what years he was in the band, but I know he that... He toured with him, right? He, yeah, for a while. Yeah. Number one, are you influenced at all as a guitarist by Wes Montgomery, and did he, did he tell you anything about touring with Wes? To answer your first question, I mean, it's sort of sacrilege to say no, but <laughs> I really am not... Um, Wes Montgomery is somebody who I have the deepest respect for, but I can't say that his records in particular or records that he's on in particular were a super formative part of my approach. But he has had such a profound influence that it's impossible to kind of not... You know, like, it, it's just... Uh, he's influenced so many people who have influenced me that in that way he's of course impacted my playing i mean just to give an example like bill frizzell is one of my favorite musicians of all time and wes for him is you know kind of the original impulse in terms of his relationship to improvisation so even just through that he's had a big influence on me and then secondly yes i've heard some great stories from Billy about touring with Wes and one of my favorite ones is um, it was about I think they were playing in Boston or something and it was pretty early on and um, Billy's telling me about how after a gig you know it was yeah it must have been one of the first shows because Wes told him that he had played really well, but that he didn't like the sound of his cymbal. <laughs> and I just remember, I don't know if he's going to get mad at me for telling the story. If he hear, He's probably not going to know that I told it. But he said something like, you know, what I wanted to say was, well, I don't like the sound of your guitar. <laughs> listening to Cultural Manifesto. If you're just tuning in, my guest tonight is guitarist and composer Rafiq Bhatia. Rafiq will be performing in Indianapolis on Thursday, November 8th, in the Toby at Newfields. For tickets and more information, visit discovernewfields.org. Let's listen to a track off Rafiq's 2012 debut album, Yes, It Will. This is Rafiq Bhatia, with try.
I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. My guest tonight is the guitarist and composer Rafiq Bhatia. Rafiq will be performing in Indianapolis on Thursday, November 8th, in the Toby at Newfields. For tickets and more information, visit discovernewfields.org. Let's return to my conversation with Rafiq Bhatia. We just heard a track off your 2012 album, Yes It Will, which was your solo debut, correct? Um, that's my debut. You had an EP album. out yeah, before that. Yeah, I had an that. EP yeah. that came yeah. out a month before that. Which so. is an awesome EP with a Flying Lotus cover on it that's really cool, right? Thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, there was a six-year gap between Yes It Will and Breaking English, right? Mm-hmm. And I know you spent a couple of those years touring and recording with Sunlux, but I also understand this was also a period of time where you were kind of redefining your approach to not only playing guitar, but just creating your own music mm-hmm. in general. And there was a, a recent piece in the, in the New York Times where you were quoted as saying you needed to make a radical break with your instrument and retool your vocabulary mm-hmm. of music making. Can you talk about that six-year period and kind of your transition as a kind of jazz guitarist to, w- to where you're at now? Well, I think a lot of where it started has to do with things that you can hear shades of in that track that we were just listening to because um, even at first I sort of had a very hard time going into the process of making a record thinking about um, what is typically done when you make a quote-unquote like straight-ahead jazz album is that there's this kind of... um, allegiance to the idea of simulating the feeling of a bunch of musicians playing in a room that you're in you know it's like a live recording but everything feels realer and more close up and more intimate and it's you know but it's it's designed to kind of create the impression of that experience but a lot of times the process by which that's done is actually very painstakingly clinical like they'll have blankets all over the piano and everyone's in different rooms and the amps in a different room than the guitar player and you know like it's it's just this whole thing where everything gets isolated and is recorded as dry as possible and then um they'll sort of go back in afterwards and and scrub it clean of any traces of human error or even just human anything, you know, like sometimes. And what you're left with is is this kind of um, this thing that's supposed to feel natural but is actually constructed in a very unnatural way. The sort of constraint of trying to limit the guitar's influence on the music, at least at first, was designed to force me to really grapple with learning this new kind of language to creating music and techniques that were required. Rafiq, I briefly want to go back to this recently published New York Times piece by Andrew Chow. Um, You talked earlier about the importance of Vijay Iyer and seeing a musician who looked like you represented in a form of music that you loved playing. In this piece uh, by Andrew Chow in New York Times, as you you talk about as you transition from a jazz-based approach to this world of kind of avant-garde electronic music or sound sculpting, however, however, however you want to describe it, you talk about uh, having a sense of self-doubt about whether or not you and your music would be accepted in this scene that you describe as being heavily segregated and dominated by white men. Um, Do you care to talk at all about kind of the biases or the segregation in that community that kind of, you know, cause those feelings of self-doubt in you? I know earlier you talked about the importance of community and kind of the decision-making of your direction in music. So that must have been huge for you if you felt like this is an area I want to explore, but <laughs> there's not a community there kind of waiting to kind of 
embrace what I'm doing. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think um, it's interesting to me because, I mean, part of growing up in a situation where you don't really fit into any kind of groups of people or cliques or scenes or whatever is that you end up, or at least I ended up feeling like I would be able to explore a lot of different things and appreciate things from different perspectives. And I think that relatability is a really big part of how people come to music. And I mean, I described the power of that in that experience with Vijay, but that's not something that by and large I've had in music. So I think that has given me a, um, I, I feel a little bit more removed from that side of the equation of how I gravitate towards the music. And it tends to be more that I'll relate to something in the sound more than I relate to the people making it maybe. But going back to your question about these scenes, you know, coming out of a perspective where most of the music that has been the most impactful on me has been music that has come directly out of African-American communities. And, um, you know, be it, the hip hop that I fell in love with when I first started making music and that's still what I listen to the most or whether it was that jazz music that I was talking about that I discovered in high school that resonated with me in terms of like the idea of narrativity and um, musical expression or, um, you know, any number of these things ended up being really formative in terms of my musical development, but also in the formation of my aesthetics. Something that I've noticed in a lot of these sort of like electronic or electroacoustic scenes is that they, as you, you know, mentioned that I had said in that article, that they tend to be very heavily segregated or just that there are no non-white people are almost no non-white people involved in these circles i mean i'm talking about like record labels where you go through the whole roster of the label and everybody's white or you look at a festival lineup and everybody's white and that's you know that's not something that people notice if they're represented in that situation but for a lot of people who aren't represented in that situation that in and of itself is an immediate kind of, um, you know, it, it makes you feel excluded from the music before you can even really dive into it because not only is there nobody that looks like me, but there's like nobody who is non-white in these circles at all. The people that I've met in these scenes are not, you know, they don't, I, I think most of them would describe themselves as progressives and would describe their scenes as being interested in cultivating more diversity and they would lament the lack of ethnic diversity in their circles. Um, but the thing that always happens is that I find that people are looking for others who look different from them but have the same ideas as them and the same aesthetics as them. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. If you're just tuning in, my guest tonight is the composer and guitarist Rafiq Bhatia. Rafiq will be performing in Indianapolis on Thursday, November 8th in the Toby at Newfields. Let's return to my conversation with Rafiq as I ask about his critically acclaimed 2018 album Breaking English. It's an extraordinary record. It's titled Breaking English, and I did want to play a couple songs and get your reaction. I, I get the feeling you like to let the music kind of speak for itself, but there were a couple songs that I think had strong thematic elements that might be worth discussing. And the first track I want to play is Hoods Up, which I read was in some way um, 
written surrounding the, the murder of Trayvon Martin, the, t- the teenage kid in Florida who was shot in 2012 over coming home with a pack of Skittles, you know, from the convenience store. Tell me about this piece and, and what about the tragic murder of Trayvon Martin kind of spoke to you in creating this. For me, a lot of times, especially with instrumental music, there is a tendency for meaning to be a sort of abstract element in terms of how you associate sound with ideas. Um, But the Trayvon Martin case and its aftermath were very much in the air when I was starting to work on this piece. And there was a march in New York City that I was not able to attend, but which I remember being very affected by the idea of and also hearing the speeches that were made there. And it was the Million Hoodie March where everybody wore hoodies um, in solidarity with this kid who, whose reputation was dragged through the media um, after he was gunned down, <laughs> exploiting every possible super predator type stereotype about a young black kid and um you know the sort of like quote unquote like thug demonization that was taking place so i think there was an element of this when i started where i wanted to create something that would how do you um how do you humanize a subject that's been dehumanized um how do you express deep frustration while also conveying a sense of deep intimacy with the subject how do you express hopelessness in a way that feels like it can billow up into a tide that eviscerates everything into it in in its path and clears ground for rebirth and renewal. You know, like these were some of the elements that I think were at play in the way that I was initially thinking of this song. But as the years unfolded in which I was working on it and we saw the rise of Donald Trump and this um, sort of movement towards this kind of dehumanization of various minority groups on a large-scale level, that sort of hope that that march had kind of inspired in me initially gave way to something that was even darker, which was seeing reminders of a different kind of hood from our history peeking out again, you know? And so that's, that's sort of how that title ended up coming to stick. Yeah, let's listen to Hoods Up off the new record, Breaking English.
I'm Kyle Lone, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. My guest tonight is the guitarist and composer Rafik Bhatia, and we just heard Hoods Up, a track of Rafik's latest album, Breaking English. Rafik will bring his immersive multimedia Breaking English tour to Indianapolis on Thursday, November 8th in the Toby at Newfields. For tickets and more information, visit discovernewfields.org. Let's return to my conversation with Rafik Bhatia. And Rafik, the next track I wanted to ask you about is Before Our Eyes. And throughout the album, there seems to be, to me, a strong influence of Carnatic music and the rhythms and, of course, the use of violin, right? Can you talk about that element of the record on this track specifically, but just uh, as a motif throughout the record, these sounds of kind of these uh, references to Carnatic music? Well, I think maybe... I mean, especially the rhythms of Carnatic music have been influential to me in my development. And one of the places where I heard them early on was in Vijay Iyer's music. Um, and he's of South Indian descent and had taken a particular interest in Carnatic music and the sort of cadential aspects of the rhythm. Like in the West, we often think about harmony as having tension and resolution. But in Indian music, there's a... Um, really incredible attention to the way that you can create tension and resolution and really elegant kind of ways with rhythm. And, um, and so that's something that is actually very, the influence of that and also the influence of Vijay's work and the way that he's dealt with that are more apparent, I think, on Yes, It Will. Um, but what you hear more of on Breaking English maybe is the melodic sensibility of some of that music. Um, and Anjana Swaminathan is really mostly responsible for that. She's the violinist that you'll hear on this track and who also made a brief appearance on Hoods Up. Um, and she is a musician who grew up studying Carnatic music and still is involved in that music, but she's not limited by it. And she's active in a lot of other circles as well, as well, including the improvised music community. And um, I met her through her sister, Rajna, who's an incredible Murdungam player, um, who I met through Vijay, actually. <laughs> um, but Anjana and I had been in touch and had been talking sort of around that time period that I was describing predating the election and in the immediate, immediate aftermath. And I think both of us were really struggling with the implications of the election. Um, you know, that somebody who would advocate a ban on people like my parents was elected to the presidency, not to mention all of the other reasons, you know, but just that one in, in particular, um, for both of us, um, was really salient. And we had had a few conversations about how that was affecting our art. And I just remember the sessions that we did together working on this record were really charged with that energy and it's a really wide serpentine kind of coiling expression of melody um and I think it it um cuts really deep and I'm really proud to have it on the record of his new album Breaking English this is Rafiq Bhatia with Before Our Eyes
I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. My guest tonight is the guitarist and composer Rafiq Bhatia, and we just heard Before Our Eyes, a track off Rafiq's latest album, Breaking English. And Rafiq will bring his immersive multimedia Breaking English tour to Indianapolis on Thursday, November 8th in the Toby at Newfields. For tickets and more information, visit discovernewfields.org. Let's return to my conversation with Rafiq Bhatia. And Rafiq, the last song I want to play off Breaking English is the title track, which is a very beautifully orchestrated piece that has a choir in it. It veers into almost this gospel music territory. It kind of reminded me of a Jay Dilla type kind mm. of f- funky track. Uh, tell me about this track, Breaking English. Well, this one, actually, the the sort of guitar melody... Um, was something I composed spontaneously and it was in the middle of an improvisation. And I have a recording of the first time I played it, you know, when I kind of like happened upon it and it sounds like exactly like it did on the record. You know, like it just kind of came out fully formed with its odd 10 bar structure and all this sort of stuff. Um, But it's, Every once in a while when you're an improviser, there are things that happen where it feels like the music was just there in the ether or something and that you're not really responsible for it. And at least with that kind of central theme, it sort of feels like I just it like happened to me or something. Um, but the context around that was something that took a lot of very careful work in sculpting and um, really privileged to have the incredible Marcus Gilmore on the drums on that track who um, has been a collaborator of mine um, and who I've been fortunate to work with um, a lot over the last few years. And those vocals are from Nina Moffat, um, who's a really incredible New York-based vocalist um, who has you know like she's been singing music out of the church her whole life and got really into gospel music in high school um and has an approach that has a foot in that but that is also really interested in kind of um what you might call extended techniques, which is using your instrument in ways in which it's not typically utilized or um, using techniques that are unconventional to produce certain kinds of sounds. And so I think she has a really interesting take on not only the strength, you know, ways of singing that articulate the strength and power of the human voice, but also that kind of articulate the fraying of the human voice and the the kind of um there's beauty but there's also pain and i think breaking english has a number of meanings and some of them that you know one of the ones that's been explored more in conversations and reviews and things like that is about challenging and retooling vocabulary one of the things that is a theme throughout this record is breath and the sound of breath and breathing. Um, Even though the choir is kind of detuned and warbling and has this sort of androgynous, half-human, half-machine quality to it, the breathing is like almost to the point of a gasp or something. It's like a very, very prominent part of how that part functions and the only reason why you don't notice it more is because it's such a natural part of what we're all always doing. Rafiq, thank you so much for taking time to uh, come here today and share uh, music off this extraordinary record, man. I really appreciate it. I know you had a busy day and you're on tour right now, so thank you so much, man, for taking time to be here today. No, no, thank you for taking the time. It was really great to speak to you. Thank you, Rafiq.
That's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you for tuning in, and thank you to my guest, Rafiq Bhatia. One final reminder, Rafiq Bhatia will be performing live in Indianapolis with an immersive multimedia experience on Thursday, November 8th in the Toby at Newfields. Opening for Rafiq will be acclaimed Sunlux drumming virtuoso Ian Chang, who brings electronic music to the physical realm. This is going to be an amazing show. For tickets and more information, visit discovernewfields.org. I'm Kyle Long, and you've been listening to Cultural Manifesto, made possible in part by the Indianapolis Foundation, celebrating over 100 years of service. Mm-hmm.